0: Today's scripture reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 to 29, and can be found on page 841 of the Blue Pew Bibles. Mark 6, verses 14 to 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with order to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we uh, ask now that you give us your grace as we look at your word, as we listen to it. Um, We ask that you help us uh, and that you would give us the strength to trust you as we see in this passage that following you uh, leads to very difficult things. We pray this for your glory alone. Amen. Just a late edit. The title of this sermon is How We Serve the Kingdom. Um, so if you're making, taking notes, that'll be more helpful than I think what was the old edit there. So how we serve the kingdom is what we're going to look at this morning. There's a ride at, uh, Disney's animal kingdom called Everest. And I'm sorry if this is somewhat of a spoiler alert, if you haven't been there and planned to, but, uh, it's still worth going, but it's a roller coaster. And like many roller coasters, the expectation is that you will go up really, really, really high so that at some point you can come down really, really, really fast. That's right? kind of how roller coasters work. But that's not how Everest works. It's a little different. Um, right at the point where you think you're going to crest the top of the mountain, you actually come around this this, you know, this peak and you stop. The track runs out. And you're not really sure where you're supposed to go at this point or what's going to happen because you've, you've come down the only track that's possible. But, of course, Disney has this all figured out. And so what they do is they, uh, they shift the track behind you Right, And uh, you start to shoot backwards in a completely different direction than you thought that you were headed originally. So now you don't even know what's going on. Right. And it shoots you back into this dark cave with, the you know, going backwards in all these directions, only then to change directions somehow and shoot you, spit you out of Everest going down this big free fall. Um, you know, it, it, it's 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 a nice little twist for what is for the most part a pretty normal uh, roller coaster, but it, it gets you. You know, and you get off there and you're like, thanks, Disney. It was totally worth me giving you my kidney to go ride this. Um, And I will, I got to keep the other one, but I would love to ride it again. Yes. Um, What do I tell you that? We come to this uh, strange passage uh, in the book of Mark, and it's not strange in its context or in its content. The story is pretty straightforward. As you heard, John the Baptist dies. But what's strange about it is its placement in the narrative of Mark that I want to draw our attention to. That if you are just reading through the book of Mark, this story really doesn't fit. It kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, Last week in chapter 5, we looked at Jesus healing a demon-possessed man. Before that, in chapter 4, we heard Jesus teach us about how the kingdom grows with parables. Um, Then we get to chapter 6, and we hear of uh, people rejecting Jesus in his hometown. wasn't really expecting that, but okay. Uh, Right after that, Jesus continues with his ministry, sending out his disciples to go into towns uh, to heal people and to call them to repentance, more of ministry. Then in verse 30 of chapter 6, we read of this wonderful story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? It's great. But sandwiched in between there in chapter 6 is this story of John the Baptist. And as you read this, you're asking yourself, where did this come from, Mark? Why why is this here? It doesn't really make any sense as it pertains to the flow of the other stories. Why is Mark wanting us to know what happened to John the Baptist all of a sudden and now? Well, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that this passage that we just heard is right where it should be. Um, and, And it's here to help us to adjust our expectations for Jesus and the kingdom of God. That is, we think we're going one way with Jesus... But what this text does is it stops us and it sends us in a completely different direction than we thought that we were headed as followers of Jesus. It is as if Mark is saying, you think that following Jesus up to this point will take you to this place or give you this thing? Oh, no, 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 no. Following Jesus leads this way. And where is that? To death. So. Mark is, is, is by way of putting this here for us, adjusting our expectations and getting us to, to understand that if we wish to continue to follow this Jesus, here is the direction that we are going. And with these adjusted expectations, we then begin to learn something important, and that is how we actually serve the kingdom as his followers. And what that looks like, what that often feels like, what we can expect As followers of Jesus and how as Christians we find the strength even to continue because we know that we have Jesus forever. Which allows us to lay down our lives today. That's what we're going to see. That's what we're going to see in this passage. So let's look at three things briefly. The frustration in the passage. The meaning of the passage. And then the direction the passage sends us. Okay. So the frustration in the passage The meaning in the passage and the direction the passage sends us as followers of Jesus. So the frustration in the passage. What happened to John the Baptist? Okay. Um, Here's what happened to John. He gets arrested for preaching God's word. He gets sent to prison. We don't hear from, from him for a while. It says as the narrative flows. And then John dies a very senseless, unjust death. This is what happens to John the Baptist. Uh, James Edwards, in his commentary, puts it this way. The one whom Jesus called the uh, the greatest man born of woman back in Matthew 11 is sacrificed to a cocktail wager. This is what happened to John the Baptist. Does this sound good? Are we ready to go be Christians? (laughs) Back in chapter 1, where we meet John as the forerunner to Jesus' ministry, verse 14 tells us that John was arrested, but we don't know why. Now in chapter 6, Mark is giving us the story and where this arrest ultimately led. It is here that we are introduced then to this king, King Herod, who was one of the four sons of Herod the Great. And a lot of what you would expect, just to kind of save you some of this, but what you would expect in a family when it comes to generational royalty and politics, politics and power, the Herodian dynasty does not disappoint. Right. Uh, there's multiple children from multiple spouses and cousins and uncles. It's a real Jerry Springer mess here. Um, but what we learn in verses 17 to 18 is that Herod has divorced his wife. He's married his brother Philip's wife now. And Philip is still alive. And this was prohibited by Jewish law in Leviticus 18.16. And this is what John is actually saying to Herod and why it is unlawful for him to do this. And in this charge, while seemingly pick, pricking the conscience of Herod, has infuriated Herodias, his now wife, who wants John taken out. Herod showing favor to John and even, quote, fearing, fearing him, as the text says, and knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Keeps him safe in prison in verse 20, but in, until we get to verse 21, where we hear this party. <clears throat> and in this party, Herod has his, really his niece, dance for him. And this is all in front of the nobles, the military commanders, right? The, the important people of the day. And he has his niece come and dance for him in a way that apparently is very pleasing to everybody. And under the influence of alcohol, no doubt, Herod makes this just ridiculous. Wager. You can have up to half of my kingdom. Whatever you want. Which is not even true. He can't even, even if he wanted to, he couldn't give the kingdom away because it belongs to the Romans. (laughs) So it's, you know, there's just this sort of, oh, yeah. And so she goes and what? Talks to mom. And now everything that mom's been waiting for, right? Because what stands between her and everything she wants in life is John the Baptist, so to speak. She said, well, here, ask for the head of John the Baptist. The daughter goes. And there Herod is sort of faced with the decision of, should I save face here uh, in front of these nobles, showing them that I am you know, someone that you know, keeps his word, shouldn't be messed with, or you know, do I save John if I speak up for him? <clears throat> well, we know what happened. Um, John the Baptist loses his head for no real reason at all. The greatest man ever born of a woman, according to Jesus this is the frustration in the passage that I want to draw your attention to. It's senseless as we read it. It seems like a waste. Um, and by the end, you really, you really feel the injustice here for John. That the only decency, though, in this account, as Edwards does point out, is that his followers come, his disciples come, and they give him a proper burial. And that's it. Uh, John's death is extremely uneventful as far as martyrs go. There's no charge into the battlefield for freedom or liberty. Right? There's no significance really given to his death at this point from the narrative. On top of that, you know Jesus is actually there. Like he's, he's on the ground somewhere. I mean, he's not with John like he's alive and well. <laughs> Couldn't he do something? And, and you know, maybe even John's disciples to kind of come in and, and, and do something, no, nothing happens. John submits himself to the fate of a seemingly pointless and unnecessary, unnecessary cocktail wager. And this should frustrate us. And I think that's Mark's point. There should be a sense of, this doesn't seem right. You know, at the least, why doesn't God do something? Uh, but what the Bible is doing is it is sending us, what? Into another direction. A different way of thinking about our lives. A different way of serving. A different way of living. A different way of thinking about what it might look like to follow Jesus. On top of that, um, well... <clears throat> Move back up. When we do this, it's challenging us to think about a different way to follow Jesus that would often feels like enduring one that often feels like enduring injustice, such as John the Baptist's experience. It's actually closer to what serving the kingdom feels like. And what, the, what Mark is trying to show us is, is it's what we should begin to expect as followers of Jesus. Mark is here to tell us that Jesus has come to turn this world upside down. We know that because we know the end of the story. And, and, and we know that, that Mark will tell us later that Jesus will say that the first will be last and the last will be first. Those who keep their lives will lose it. And those who lose their lives for my sake will keep it. Right, there is a new way to travel here according to Mark for those that follow Jesus. A different direction to head in. But often that direction, if we're honest about it, feels like the wrong way. Like things aren't working. It feels like enduring injustice instead of experiencing the justice that this Messiah is supposed to bring. And we see that in this passage as, as Jesus said, the greatest man ever born woman dies. A seemingly pointless, senseless death. This is the frustration in the passage. A frustration that I know all of those who would call themselves, call ourselves Christians, have experienced Uh, In in this lifetime, no doubt. Uh, But let's see what the Bible might be trying to tell us through this. Uh, And this gets to the second point, the meaning of the passage. The meaning of this passage for Mark, for its readers, is that where John goes, so Jesus goes as well. That's the new direction. That's the new expectation for those that are following along. Where John goes, so Jesus will go as well. Uh, What Mark is doing is he's preparing his readers for what is to come. For Mark, John the Baptist, as we know, was the forerunner to Jesus' ministry in chapter 1. We remember him quoting Isaiah, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way. But John isn't just the forerunner to Jesus' ministry according to Mark at this point. He is also the forerunner to where Jesus' ministry will lead him. That's the change. This passage is the first musical note, if you will, to a symphony for Mark that ends at Golgotha, the way of Jesus. It's a very intentional and powerful way um, to communicate to us what change of direction we're going to be heading in if we continue to follow him. Understanding what this kingdom is and what what it means to even serve this kingdom later on. Mark is setting the expectation For what will happen to Jesus, this Messiah. If we recall, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the expectations that that many had for how the kingdom would grow. And that Jesus was speaking into those expectations for how that kingdom will grow. That that kingdom will, you know, for some, they expected it to come instantly when that Messiah showed up. For others, they expected the kingdom to come with power and might, you know, to, to take over the throne of Rome. But Jesus said, no, 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 my my kingdom starts out slow and it grows gradually, right? My kingdom, it begins small. It's actually unnoticeable, like a mustard seed. Well, with those expectations of how the kingdom might grow are also, are coming with it, also expectations for what that Messiah or king will do for you. And this is where Mark is challenging that for us. Uh, but if John, because if John is the forerunner to Jesus, then following Jesus isn't going to give you what that mansion in the hills all of a sudden. All right, if John is the forerunner uh, to Jesus, then following Jesus isn't going to give you worldly status or power. That you might have expected if John is the foreigner to Jesus, then following Jesus, according to Mark, is going to actually get you killed at worst, but offer very little in earthly comforts at best. Jesus has come to lay his life down, Mark is telling us. And if you're following Jesus for what he can give you, then this passage immediately becomes a warning for us. And this is why also for many, uh, it doesn't make sense. Why is it here? We have all these expectations for what this Messiah is going to do. Why put a story in here about the one who came before Jesus dying? Where John goes, So Jesus will go too. Adjust your expectations accordingly for what you think this king has come to do, for what you think this king will give you in this lifetime. This is the meaning of the passage. What's astounding about what Mark is really doing here is he is changing the paradigm for what anyone thought the Messiah would do, which is die or lay his life down, lay down his authority for the sake of somebody else. But it's more than that. Jesus just won't, he won't just die. He will die in the most unjust of ways. In other words, as senseless and unjust as the death of John the Baptist seems to us, Jesus' death will be more so. A perfectly innocent man who will die in the most humiliating of ways, naked on a cross between two thieves. Where John goes, Jesus will go as well. This is the meaning of the passage. Are we now, as followers of this this gospel, as readers in Mark, are we ready for the direction this kingdom is about to take us? This gets to the third point. The direction this passage sends us as followers of disciples of Jesus. If Jesus follows the way of John, then the direction this passage sends us in as we follow Jesus is going to be the way of John too. This is what it should start registering in us as we read this. In other words, giving our lives away, not keeping them. Not holding on to our lives out of fear, but laying our lives down in love will be how we actually learn to serve this kingdom. This is the direction the passage wants to send us as followers. Remember, unless a seed is buried and dies, a harvest cannot come. Which means that, that, that for much of our serving uh, in the kingdom, which is where, this is where I want the majority of our time to be spent here fleshing this out, because we've been talking about this for the past couple of weeks, much of serving the kingdom, much of heading in the direction of Jesus and his cross, will feel more like the enduring of injustice than the experience of justice in this lifetime. This is the new expectation. This is the new expectation for followers of Jesus from Mark. This is the new direction. I mean, all John the Baptist did was preach God's word. And someone with authority didn't like it. Even Jesus will die for no other reason than he was a threat to the authorities and the power structures of that day. How senseless. How senseless. One of my favorite stories from, the church, from church history, as we looked at the martyrs, is the story of Polycarp. And I know we've talked about this story here, but it's worth revisiting again. Polycarp was a disciple of John, the Apostle John, in the late first century. He lived to be 86 years old, but toward the end of his life, the Romans were trying to force him to recant, to, to deny Christ. But Polycarp refused, so the Roman proconsul tied him to the stake and lit a fire underneath him. And said, in essence, deny Christ or burn. Now the history books continue... As an eyewitness records that these were his final words. These are Polycarp's final words. For 86 years, I have served Christ and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? And then instead of cursing his murderers, the historians write, he prayed these words out loud. Lord, sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment. For this I bless and glorify you. Amen. And with that, he died in flames. No, I'm not saying this will happen to you. I'm praying it won't. Uh, Much, though, of our serving, the reason I recount that, much of our serving the kingdom will feel more like enduring injustice than it will be experiencing justice here. Which also means that the primary way followers of Christ serve the kingdom is through suffering. In other words, you cannot keep your life and follow Jesus and his kingdom. At the same time, Herod and his his wife, they want to keep their lives. They want the marriage, they want the power, they want all that comes with that. But they flat out reject the word of God. John, by contrast, doesn't keep his life, follows Jesus as best he can, but loses his head instead. But what do we learn later on, right? Actually, Jesus will say that he actually will keep his life. Because there's something attached to this, and we're going to see that here in a second. But the point is, you can't keep your life and follow Jesus and serve his kingdom at the same time. This is why this story is here. This is what it's preparing us for. This is how it's setting the expectation for those who would come after Jesus. This is the direction that we are turning into now. And it's not just a, the world wants to take you out as a Christian friend's. This is what Jesus calls you and me to. Don't don't miss that. To give your life for the sake of this world. To deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow him. These are the words of your king. It's not just that the world hates you. Some of that might be true. But it is your king asking you to lay these things down for the sake of others, as we will see. Which is ultimately why much of how we serve the kingdom today feels more like enduring injustice than experiencing the justice that the king provides. One of the reasons it's important to talk about this is yes, maybe we need a refresher here and thus readjust our expectations as followers of Christ. But the main reason we need to talk about this and why I think Mark is talking about this is to give hope and encouragement to those already suffering for the king. Think about those original, that original audience again, those suffering under, Nero, under Nero's persecution. It's to give hope to those who are already suffering. And suffering in ways that seem unjust and seem senseless when all around you, it seems like everybody else is getting what they want. Is getting their best life now, right? Is, is, you know, is, is being able to keep their life. The text says, be encouraged. Your suffering is not in vain. Your king knows your suffering and it pleases him and not in a sadistic kind of way, friends, but in a way that says, you know me, you know more of me because of your suffering. Eugene Peterson calls this type of suffering the cave and he says this about that. He says the cave is a bad place, but it leads to a good place. It is the dictionary where David learned the meaning of the word refuge. It is in the cave in darkness and suffering enduring what seems like injustice even that we learn about God because it's here that what our expectations of serving the kingdom are purified. It is here that we learn to love God who what for, for who he is, not for what he can give us. This is what John the Baptist is showing us. But this is why God is pleased. If serving the kingdom feels more like suffering, then you are actually learning the meaning of the word refuge. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. The real danger, as we will see in the weeks to come, but certainly in this passage of keeping our lives which can look like the comforts of this world, like power grabs in this world, or the dreams that we have for our families. The real danger in keeping those things is too easily they become our refuge. And guilty right here. They become our refuge and not Jesus. This is why we adjust our expectations. Pain and suffering is not God's punishment on you, friend. Pain and suffering doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. It's actually how we serve the kingdom in many, many ways. Why? Because this is what our King calls us to. This is the way of the cross. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will keep his life, will save his life for my sake, will lose it. <clears throat> but who, for whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the direction. Right. The passage, passage is beginning to send us in. So we've looked at the frustration of this passage. We've looked at the meaning of this passage. And lastly, the direction of this passage. How then do we do this? And let's leave some time for some application. How, how, do, we, how do we do that? How do we even begin, you know, if we're just sort of readjusting our expectations, begin to turn in the direction of the cross and honestly go there? Laying our lives down with, for whatever, whatever that looks like. How do we do that? How do we serve the kingdom in this way? Well, the way we do that is coming back to this wonderful doctrine that has sort of been floating behind the scenes this entire time. is that doctrine of our union with Christ. Right? Before we get here, and, and what we've talked about over the past couple weeks, weeks, like, it just seems like we're doing a lot of dying, Ryan. <laughs> and this kingdom can't be uh, just dying for dying's sake. Right? There must be something behind and in front of our suffering, and there is. And this is where we come to our union with Christ. And remember what that means, that we serve the kingdom in our joys and in our sufferings united to him. Which, as Rankin-Wilburn writes in his book, Union with Christ, is both the anchor and the engine for the Christian life. That is, union with Christ it says that you are inseparably attached to Jesus by faith, and that his death is your death, that his resurrection is your resurrection. Union with Christ tells us there is nothing then that can happen to you that would remove you from his grip. Therefore, it is being united to Jesus, both in his death and resurrection, that both anchors us in our sufferings, but also sends us into serving this kingdom at great cost to ourselves. Why? Because you are united to Him. Because He has you. <clears throat> and because this is true, we then don't have to fear laying our lives down. We don't have to fear uh, what, what it would look like to to, to to keep our lives, to want to keep our lives and not give those things away. For the sake of the kingdom. John the Baptist doesn't have to fear. What it looks like to keep his life. He can let it go because he's united to Jesus. The same for Paul. This is what allows Paul. And I feel like I've said this before. To say the the craziest of words. that, That to live is Christ. But to die is gain. That only make, you can only say that if you understand that you're united to him, that whatever happens in this body here right, doesn't, doesn't interrupt my being connected to Jesus. <clears throat> same thing for Polycarp, same thing for all the martyrs, same thing for us, right? This, and, and, and let me say this, this doesn't mean that we aren't afraid. So let me just set that expectation as well. This doesn't mean that Polycarp wasn't afraid, or that Paul wasn't afraid at times, I think it's normal to be afraid. It just means that we are beginning to see the love of Christ because of that union that we have with him, right? Come in and conquer that fear and drive it out. This sends us into that direction. Okay, so let's get more practical with this, with the time that we have left. What does this look like? This is the million dollar question in our life, right? right? How am I supposed to communicate to you? How are you supposed to go start You know, giving your life away? Sorry, dying to yourself for the sake of serving the kingdom. This is the challenge, and so here's where I want us to start. I want us to start small, because I want us to be a place that, that that is willing to look at where Jesus is headed and to adjust those expectations and to turn direction and follow Him, whatever it might cost us. I want to be that type of pastor. So where do we start? And we've got to start small. We can't say everything here. And where I want us to start is with our fears. Is with our fears. Let's look at the disciples and even the religious leaders of the day uh, back in this text, but also just as we've talked about in the weeks before, who wanted the kingdom to come in certain ways, whether that be instantly or whether that be with power so that they could have power. What's the fear then for them if this kingdom doesn't come this way? As Jesus speaks the parable of how the kingdom is going to grow and they're realizing, oh man, this is not happening the way that I wanted it to. What's the fear of that kingdom, for example, not coming instantly? Or well, maybe the fear is living in a world where Nero has the ability to take you out. To take your life. Okay. Okay, I get that. All right, I get that. <clears throat> I want to hold on to my life. I don't want to lay it down in that situation. So what will serving the kingdom look like? What will starting small look like? It's taking that fear to Jesus and then letting him address it. And what does Jesus say about that? He says, look, I get it too. I understand, but I died and was raised already so that you might experience the same thing one day. Yes, Nero might still take your life today. Death is real. But you are united to me. I will be with you always till the ends of the earth because I have actually conquered death in my resurrection, which you are united to as well. And as we turn that fear towards Jesus, his love begins to what? Conquer that fear, drive it out. And when love begins to conquer that fear, you begin to find new ways to serve the kingdom by giving your life away. Let's start with the fear. Another example, the disciples are are those uh, with with kingdom expectations that that this kingdom would give them power and authority and control and prestige and significance. I want to sit at your right and I want to sit at your left. What's the fear if this doesn't happen? I can think of a hundred. Maybe I don't get the life that I wanted. Maybe I don't get to give the life that I wanted to my kids or my family. Like the dreams that I have for this life. If, If Jesus isn't coming to take that throne today... I might not get those things. So what happens when we turn those fears towards Jesus? He says, look, I understand. I I understand about dreams. I gave up all of my dreams, though, to come here in the flesh to die for you. He gave up glory, friends. He gave up more than we will ever be able to comprehend And here's what's interesting. He actually gave it up for a bigger and better dream that involves you. That you are not a part of. Your family is a part of. Your union with Christ says so. So again, as we allow Jesus to speak into that fear, love begins to conquer it. when When love begins to conquer that fear, you can begin to consider dying to those dreams. It's the only way. I don't know what dreams you need to die to today. And I'm not even going to begin, you know, to start scatter shooting across the congregation, guilting you into this. But what I do know, because I know myself, is I have fear. already going late. Here's my fear. What I have got to hand over to Jesus, and I know this about myself, is I hide behind my kids. My fears are all wrapped up in well, what 's best for them what what, what if they don 't get this kind of life you know, what if what if what if we go in this direction and it 's not good for them <laughs> I get it and what 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 begins to happen is I turn towards Jesus and offer that fear, expose that fear to him, let him speak into it like, Could it be that he might actually love my children more than me like, this is what happens look the only alternative, and listen to this, the only alternative is to go the way of Herod and Herodias. Would they look to the love of Christ to remove their fear? No. They, they, they held on to their fears and tried to secure significance and wealth and pleasure and power in the world's ways. But even as history tells you, uh, uh, you, know, if, you if you read on, the affair that he had would actually come back to haunt them relationally, starting a war that would send him and her exiled to Spain, where he would die an un, at an unknown date. Like He, he was forgotten, essentially. And so it, it, if you're looking at this, was it worth it? How sad to give up eternity for this world, only to lose it all in the end. I'm reminded of Shakespeare's uh, Richard Third here. When Richard is on the battlefield, surrounded by the enemy, hopeless, crying out one of the greatest lines of all time, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse, right before he dies. How sad to have it all in this world, only to be willing to part ways with it when it's too late. The direction we must change is where we will look for our significance, for our status, for our love, for, the, for power. And, and it's not in our jobs. It's not in our bank accounts. It's not in our kids. But it's at the cross. It's at a cross. Where Jesus died to make you his own. Again, there is no security outside of what Jesus provides you. And that is not a curse. Although it might feel it at times. <clears throat> that is a blessing. That is real refuge. And it is a type of refuge that allows you to give yourselves away in a way that the world will never understand. You have everything in Christ. So what about you this morning? How is following Jesus and serving his kingdom, calling you and your family in a new direction? What would it look like to die to ourselves in small ways for the kingdom at Fort Worth Press? How would starting with our fears lead us in the direction of the cross where we might actually find life by giving ours away? And I I don't ask that to guilt you this morning. I really don't. This is not about guilting you. This is, I, I say this to encourage you. Whether in your suffering already or in how God might be calling you to serve his kingdom today. That because you are his, because you are united to him forever, that the fear of laying down our lives in any capacity, in any circumstance, no matter how big or small, for the sake of the king, that that fear would begin to slowly and slowly disappear. Because of his love for you. May we be a place Where we learn to say in new and in fresh ways every morning that if I get Jesus forever, what am I really holding on to with my life today? This is how we will serve the kingdom. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the story that, again, it's confusing in its placement But it's in the perfect spot that as we begin to continue along with Mark and his gospel, the passion narrative of Jesus as he goes to the cross, that you are calling us to set our expectations, to know who it is that we are following, that you are changing our direction here for for, for what anyone would have thought of for the Messiah. And we thank you that you did this. And we know that as we think about what this means for us and our lives and the direction that, that, that you may be calling us into and our, our family as well. We pray that you would go with us as you promised to do. Because you're united to us. That you would help us to trust you in, in, in those ways, no matter how big or how small. That we would learn to lay our lives down for the sake of this kingdom. For the sake of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.